Cutting through an overload of information to get to the heart of the story. This is The Point. Welcome to The Point, an opinion show coming to you from Beijing. I'm Li Xin. What pages can African countries take away from China's success story so far? A renowned South African linguist has published a book on just that. Dr. Paul Tembe, whose Chinese name means philosophical, is a senior lecturer and researcher on China with the University of South Africa. He has studied China for some 20 years in search of the answers. In his new book, Xi Jinping Thought Through South African Eyes, he detailed his experience of living in China and the valuable lessons he has learned. I was pleased to be joined from Pretoria by Dr. Paul Tembe, senior lecturer and researcher at the Department of Linguistics and Modern Languages from the University of South Africa. First of all, let me ask you about this book that you have uh, just published. It is called Xi Jinping Thought through South African eyes. As far as I understand, this is one of the first books published in Africa, possibly the first, on a South African perspective or an African perspective to Xi Jinping thought. Help us understand exactly what brought you to write this book. Why do you think it is necessary to write about it? For me, uh, 2012 brought a paradigm shift in China with the ascent of uh, President uh, Xi Jinping into the highest office in the country. And that was the 18th Congress of the CPC. And we saw what was the move. The move was the rejuvenation of China. But what was not said there in the rejuvenation of China, it was how to strengthen the identity of the Chinese nation to make it go out now as a symbol of development worldwide. And then the 19th Congress then came up with yet another thing. The issue was the philosophy of President Xi Jinping, Xi Jinping thought. That drew my attention because since the time of uh, Chairman Mao to Deng Xiaoping, Jiang Jiamin, there's been no set thoughts that will enter into the constitution. There has been a trajectory of thoughts, but I think this one marked the paradigm shift of a bolder China that is going out in the world. So I wanted to take some pages. What is it that brings forth China's success? And what is what pages of history or pages of success that Africa can borrow from China in terms of its own development, be it socially and culturally? What is the central idea of your book or ideas of your book um, because President Xi Jinping's thought is actually very wide-ranging right now we have four volumes of copious books where his uh, philosophy his governing philosophy spans from domestic economy to uh, national security to foreign affairs diplomacy to climate change environmental protection so how do you condense all of that into one book and put it in a way that relates to the South African experience? Uh, what I did actually, the methodology, the method was to go through all these sections that you have mentioned. Mainly one, the main one is the governance of China, as it is the theme for all four volumes. So I'm looking at the governance of China and there's one, one exception 
to other governments in the world. The government of China looks at long-term strategies. And these long-term strategies are broken down into five-year plans. For example, the Congress that is taking place now is taking place within the context of the 14th five-year plan, which I think the Congress will deal with achievements of this five-year plan and how to continue from it. And of course, that will then ramify to other national issues that will in turn impact international, this thing, international uh, community. But what is most important for my own work is that can then Africa look at this long-termism instead of being short-term? This drives us already in issues of democracy. If you say democracy, can you achieve anything in four years and then leave? And somebody else comes in with their own rationale after four years leaves. So I think one of the fallacy or the caveat of African nations, which I would like to see change, is the short-term planning. We rather learn from China in terms of long-term planning because that gives us time to plan and implement. It is a very essential point that you just pointed out. Basically, that's one of the key recipe, key formula why China has been able to achieve some of the greatest changes in its society, in its economy, in its armies, so on and so forth, because it's able to build on a very long process that's not disrupted. And yet, and yet, China is almost uh, a unique polity in the world because there's uh, one ruling party in consultation with other parties in you know leading by consensus is almost a unique governing model in this world in the large part of africa in south africa for instance you um, do not have that kind of that degree of continuity because you have a, your own political system which is uh, uh, also yes. a democratic system where governments rotate, where people elect their representatives and leaders change after you know, a, a term or two. So what can be taken, what is realistically can be taken from the Chinese experience and be useful, be feasible for the South African practice? Democracy is not an, should not be taken as ideology for ideology's sake. There's one part where President Xi Jinping mentions this, says that democracy must serve as a tool to serve the people, to serve the people within the context of health, education, insurance system, and the technological development. What we've seen in most countries in the world, not only Africa, is that the government in place within the four year or five years span, they are only able to plan on how to govern but they don't get enough time to implement those policies. And when they leave office, the new party that gets in comes in with their own policy plans. Mm -hmm. So it's like some countries, especially former colonized countries like the continent of Africa, you find that we run on autopilot. There is no structured, complete definition of where we are going. Yes, we do have an ideal of a developed Africa. We do have an ideal of a prosperous Africa, but within short-term span of five years or four years, it is not feasible. That is my point with the book. So 
to answer your question, how to do it in Africa without criticizing anybody, without trying to borrow the straight jacket from the, the Chinese experience. Exactly. What can be done then if you're not going to, you know, change the political system? How can you achieve relative long-term consistency, right? Or, or, or planning, the ability uh, to plan and implement in the current political that, system? That, there's a disadvantage if we say without changing the policy, because nature, like politics, don't allow a vacuum. During the time when governments are changing within a five-year span to another government, to another government, there is something that is constant. That is the markets. That is the corporate world. What does that tell you? It tells you that what actually governs most of African countries, it is the market. And if the market is not reined in, it is left to go on its own, then we have a problem. The problem becomes the notion of the zero-sum game. Industries are only for profit, not for the benefit of the people, not for servicing the people. And we've seen that in China many times. When an industry goes up, then you find that there is a, an, an initiative to establish another industry that will balance that particular industry. When the competition, the, there are disparities within competition, then the government moves in to cap that competition or to create condition for the lack of competition. So when you see any industry in China, the end game is that community must enjoy. Let us take it, uh, the, the issue of Guizhou, for example. Guizhou was the second poorest province in China. Mm -hmm. But in the last couple of years, it took up the satellite issues and the telescope issues. Now it is number 34, it is in the middle. So that is why I'm saying that when an industry gets in, in a particular region, is for the benefit of local people. So how do you achieve that when you have a government that lets markets define themselves? Like in the other Smith's uh, magic hand. In the world of today, the world is so developed that we cannot let markets just run astray by themselves. So that is the disadvantage. So that means we need to change the policy in order for the government to be able to govern. Yeah, it's, it's indeed fascinating because I have been hearing this kind of discussion. I've been talking to my friends and scholars, for instance, about what does a modern China look like? Because we did not um, grow up wearing Western clothing. I mean, our people, okay, not uh, me as a person per se, but we have brilliant culture, we have thousands of years of literature, arts, you know, costume, uh, the way our family is structured, and yet it seems that as we modernize, our ways of lives uh, are changing. We start to look more and more like what we saw on television when we started to open up and, and reform, right? Houses, Western style houses, cars, you know, not one, but two. And we all start wearing Western style clothing. We start to speak foreign languages fluently. Um, is that how we're going to be as a modern China? And, and that is the big question. So I think this is a very important uh, uh, question to be asked and to be deliberated. And that is at the heart of the search for the Chinese identity. We want to be modern, but we want to be modern in our own way. What is your understanding? Ex ex exactly, exactly. After my 
multiple travels and stay in China, I will say that there is no way that Chinese scholars' population will lose their Chinese culture. For example, whenever I read a speech or a directive or a resolution from China, there is always a proverb that you can trace it to one of the dynasties long ago, from the Yang Han dynasty, from Tang dynasty. Even President Xi's writing is full of Chengyu, is full of traditional idioms. Yeah. And if you take, for example, to occupy an official or a public office in China, we have what we call civil servants uh, distinct examination. Mm -hmm. In the civil servants examination, big chunk of that exam is about the proper use of the Chinese language. And the proper use of the Chinese language is the foundation of culture because we go back to the classics, the books of this, the books of this, the books of this, and time and again, we then find an older philosopher from thousand years ago being mentioned. So within that context, one will even say that China is a religious country within, although it's not metaphysical, mm -hmm. but China is the most religious country because it always looks into its history in order to know where they are going. So China, even if they look up to the West in terms of modernity, but it will be strongly influenced by Chinese culture because nowhere else in the world have we had the synergy between modernity and tradition where tradition surpasses modernity and China has got that model at hand. Dr. Paul Tembe joining us from Pretoria at the University of South Africa. Such a pleasure to have had this conversation with you. Thank you very much. That was my interview with Dr. Paul Tembe, author of Xi Jinping Thought Through South African Eyes. After the break, my conversation with Colin McCarras, sinologist and emeritus professor at Griffith University in Australia. Stay with us. We all enter this world with a universal greeting. <laughs> we then learn to speak. Though our languages, cultures and traditions may differ, we still share one thing in common. We have hope for humanity and the world. General Railway Company Hear the difference. Join our global network to connect with the world. Making room for all opinions and seeing events from more than one side. This is The Point. Australian Colin McCarris first came to China in 1964 and has since split his time between China and his home country. As a sinologist, he has specialized in Chinese culture, ethnic groups and China's evolving image in the world. He was mentioned as a bridge builder during President Xi Jinping's address to the Australian Parliament in 2014. What has kept him going despite the ups and downs in bilateral ties? What does he make of the 20th National Congress of the Chinese Communist Party and its key messages. I had the pleasure to speak to Professor Colin McCarras, sinologist and Professor Emeritus of Griffiths University of Australia, joining me from Brisbane.
let's start with your unique experience with China. I mean, you came to China first in the autumn of 1964. That's over That's 10 right, yeah, 1964. That's over 10 years before I was born, okay? And <laughs> Okay. And you have uh, visited China since then some 70 times. About that, yes, at least, maybe more. I've lost count, to be honest. Yeah, <laughs> and your son was actually the first Australian to be born in New China, if I rem if I, right, if the yeah. record is he correctly. Was. Yeah, wow. that's right. Wow, so how yeah. did it all start? I mean, what brought well, you? Well, it was... It Yes. It was coincidental. I bumped into a friend of mine. I said, I'm Australian. Of course, I was born and brought up in Sydney. But I was um, working in Cambridge. I was studying uh, Chinese history, actually, in Cambridge. And I met a friend um, who was going to China. And, uh, and um, I asked him to tell the, um, the representation in uh, London to give, give um, him my name. So they did, and they got in touch with me, and uh, we went to China. It was very, very um, unusual in those days. Australians very rarely went to China. I can imagine, and you stayed for two years as an English. Two years, that's right. As an English. What was then the Beijing Foreign Languages Institute? Yeah. Well, it must be a different world, right, compared to. What it's we a saw. different world, but I got to love China, and I love Chinese people. While I was there on that first occasion. Uh, and I have no, not changed my mind ever since. Some of the people I've met there are still my good friends. Uh, and it, as you say, it's a very, very different world now. It was the world um, of Mao Zedong, and it was very backward in uh, economic terms. Uh, and the students were very revolutionary. I mean, they're still very patriotic, of course. But the way they think is much more open to the outside world, and it's much more, um, yeah, it's much more, um, they're, they're much more sophisticated now. And of uh, course, the economy has changed enormously, enormously. What is the biggest change if you were to put your finger on one? I mean, it's difficult, 50 years, but... I would say that China has risen and it's now a, an economic uh, powerhouse. And I just was um, noting before this interview, the World Bank says that in uh, 2010, China's GDP constituted only 7.74% uh, of the total of the world, but now that's gone up to 15.19 in, uh, you know, just over 10 years. Uh, that's gone up more than doubled. And so it's now a significant uh, part of the world economy. And I think that's a really great achievement. And I think you can see that in all kinds of ways. You can see it in the infrastructure, mm -hmm. the high-speed railway trains especially, but also other, other factors. And you can see it in the confidence of the people, and you can see it in the living standards of the people. It's right. a very different world, well, and a much have, better world. Yeah, you have been an excellent witness to the changes that happened to China. Of course, a lot well, of things changed, you. but what do you say is the most consistent force, the factor that possibly contributed uh, to such change? If you can, The most significant factor, I think, is the good leadership and the hard work of the Chinese people. I mean, of course, there are, other, there are other factors. The Americans like to say that they should get the credit, but I don't think so. I mean, of course, the, the opening to America in 1971, 72, that, of course, helped. But it's not the main factor. The main factor is good leadership and, um, and also the hard work of the Chinese people. That's what I think, anyway. Well, now the uh, leadership of the Communist Party of China is again in yeah. the spotlight very That's continuously. Right. Yeah, with the, especially with the convening 
the ongoing National Congress, the 20th yeah. National Congress. I'm sure you have uh, been paying attention to it. Um, yeah, of course. Yeah, President Xi gave a report, a very high-profile one. So right. what is the biggest takeaway of you from this report this time? Well, I think um, the biggest takeaway is that uh, the, uh, the Chinese um, the economy will still remain very important, but he wants to put um, equality and the people more uh, center rather than uh, business. I mean, of course, business matters, but I think um, equality, because I mean, China's uh, economy, as it grew, it's grown more unequal. Um, and I think uh, he thinks that it should be, you know, made uh, common prosperity. Everyone should take part in this. And um, I think he's right. Um, I also think that, um, uh, I mean, on the side of that, the, um, the, the Chinese population has now got much more urban than it was. It's now more than half urban. Um, and it was only 10% urban in, in, uh, when, when the CCP, the, the Chinese Communist Party, came to power. And um, I think the urban population is likely to be more developed than the rural population. That's been a thing in Chinese history all the way through. And I think it's very important to note that. And he noted it too in, the, um, in, in his report. And I mean, I think it was an excellent report and the economy is important. But I think I'd also like, since you asked me what, um, what sprang out at me, I'd also like to note the uh, issue of um, national defence. I mean, just a few days ago, just um, the, almost the same time as the 20th Congress uh, um, opened, um, Biden took a decision in uh, Washington to, to uh, cut off the uh, semiconductors from China as far as he can. Mm -hmm. And his aim is to stop the rise of China's technology. Now, the Chinese, the rise of China's technology has been very, very important. So he wants to, um, Biden wants to cut that off. He, he's, he wants to stop China's rise. Right. And the reason is obvious. He's jealous of China and he wants America to stay number one. And um, he thinks that China is going to, um, you know, overtake the United States. And it probably will too. But I mean, he, that's what he's, um, he's determined to stop that. In the international press, there is this comment that, yeah, listen to the Chinese leader. He used a lot of harsh words, you know, words such as fighting, such as struggle, such as self-reliance, yeah. believing in ourselves. Um, I think there is a reason why China has to stand up and refuse to be pushed around or to be bullied. Well, I think there is too. I think it's been pushed around far too much. And the United States has signaled that they're not prepared to... to, to um, treat China as an equal. And I mean, China should be treated as an equal. Of course it should. And I think um, the United States has been working to, to try and undermine China, and it's continuing to try and undermine China. And I think that China should struggle against that. Of course it should. And um, I don't see that as being particularly aggressive. It's the US that's being aggressive, in my opinion. Yeah, exactly. Some people are trying to paint China's uh latest spirit or future image as one of belligerence, one yeah. of uh, aggression, further aggressiveness. You don't see it that way, though. No, I certainly don't. Um, I, I think that, China, that uh, the West should stop to try, just trying to fear China. Um, China is not belligerent. I mean, look, um, in, since um, 1979, China has not sent troops into another country ever. 
Um, you compare that with the United States. It's waged war against numerous countries. It's overturned um, countries' um, governments. Um, it's the US that's belligerent. China hasn't been belligerent. It's never tried to change the ideology of another country. Um, how do you understand the apparent contradiction between the high support and high trust the Chinese general public has towards their system, towards their leaders, versus the kind of dichotomy that has been imposed on China between uh, separating the party and the people? You criticize the Chinese society being an autocratic one, and yet if you look at the people, that they have very high support, they have very high trust in the system. How do you understand well, that? Well, I mean, the way it looks to me, and I, I, I'm only going on what my experience in China. I mean, I've, I've lived in China, as you said before, many times. But um, in the last 10 years, I must admit, I'm, unfortunately, I haven't been back since 2019. But I hope to go back uh, sometime soon. But um, when I was there, what I, what I noticed was that the people, um, they, they are doing well, I mean, there are, of course, there are problems, but they have faith in the system. And the more the Americans, the more the Americans try to stir up dissent, which they do, they've, they've been doing that for a long time. And mm -hmm. um, I think the Americans, I mean, I, I know friends, they say, you know, the Americans are trying to uh, split the people from the government, but we, we are going to get, we are, don't, we're not having anything from that. Um, and they, I think that the people, there's been figures, you know, they've been surveys done. And what they've found is that the Chinese people um, trust, they trust the people, the leaders, much more than people in almost any other country. Certainly in the Western countries, there's not that much faith in leaders nowadays. Thank you so much, Professor Colin McCarris, sinologist and emeritus professor at Griffith University in it's Australia. It's a great pleasure. Thank you. It's Thank been you. our pleasure too. With that, we come to the end of this edition of The Point with me, Liu Xin. As always, you can follow me on Facebook and Twitter using the handle Liu Xin in Beijing. You've got The Point. Welcome to My Stories of Chinese Characters, Season 2. I'm Uncle Han Zi. This season, we will travel to different destinations and experience the different sceneries throughout the year. This season, we will taste delicious foods. Delicious, how sure. Feel the delicacy of Chinese silk. Uh, some people say that this is the world's first computer because each one of these is an instruction. And enjoy the local architectures. Yes, it's a big house. Chinese Guzhou. We will feel a sense of camaraderie on the slow train. And feel the excitement of the snowfields. Yes! 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 I'm Uncle Han Zi. This season, we will take you to see a different China from the perspective of Chinese characters. Meet us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, and other major podcast platforms.